Hello, and welcome to a pandemic podcast. Welcome listeners to part two of a two-part episode on a year in review. We've titled this series, The Foundations of Failure, because we're looking back at how the building blocks were set up for colossal failures by governments, institutions, organizations, and so many places that the public, individuals, everyone relies to keep us safe. So it's a heavy topic, but it's good stuff to listen to, and it's good stuff to understand, and it's good stuff to know. And I'm guessing, listeners, you knew this was going to be some heavy stuff because you're listening to a pandemic podcast. So in part one, we went over the months of January, February, and March of 2022. And now we're going to be starting in April, and we're going to be looking at the rest of this year, and we're going to see where that leads us and where we go from here. Chris, why don't you start us off with maybe a little review of where we last left off? And then we can move forward. So, yeah, just to kind of very quickly review what we talked about the last episode from a New Brunswick perspective, we started the year, we came into it with 160 deaths caused by COVID-19. And at the end of March, we were looking at 350. So just in that three month period, we doubled the death toll of the first 21 months of the pandemic. That was really the worst of times. But in the rest of 2022, we see that it didn't get much better. That was kind of setting a new paradigm for what we were going to see as the cost of this ongoing pandemic. In a national view, at the beginning of 2022, Canada sat at just over 30,000 deaths due to COVID. And at the end of March, that had increased by 8,000. So an increase of about 25%. This is something that we've talked about before, but New Brunswick and really most of the Maritimes had experienced a, a very mild I hate to use that word nowadays, but a very mild first few months of the pandemic. We were lucky that we acted sort of quickly and got things relatively under control. Uh, And there was a lot of other factors which made it the pandemic just a, a little bit less of an impact here. And of course, as we talked about last time, March was when all COVID mitigations, protections were removed in New Brunswick. So we went into April with a slightly confused public, a concerned public, in some ways a relieved public, as the narrative of the pandemic being over started to become more normalized and accepted, regardless of what we were seeing with the data. Across Canada, both the Northwest Territories and Nunavut released their mask mandates. Here in New Brunswick, uh, we saw a letter written by New Brunswick pediatricians expressing fairly strong degree of concern about the state of what they were seeing unfold in the province. And maybe, Kay, you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll read it because it's only it's only one page. And I think it's a remarkable letter and it deserves to be preserved and, and more people deserve to hear the contents of this letter. So 
in mid-March, the pediatricians, a subgroup of them, worked on crafting a letter. And then they uh, worked very quickly to try to get as many of their colleagues to sign it as possible before um, making it public. Because their turnaround time was really quick, initially 19 of them signed it. And then, of course, Higgs's response, rather than acknowledging the expertise, the knowledge, the care that our pediatricians would have for the children of this province. He treated it as if it was some kind of a vote and that only 19 of the province's pediatricians was insufficient for him to care about what they had to say, which was, you know, really horrific. But anyway, so that's kind of the context of this letter. So it says an open letter from New Brunswick Pediatricians, April 1st, 2022. As pediatricians, we want to advocate for the health and safety of the children of New Brunswick. Keeping children in school and safe is of utmost importance for their health and well-being. The Nova Scotia Pediatric Pandemic Advisory Group is comprised of pediatric specialists from the IWK Health Centre and surrounding community the Tertiary Pediatric Referral Center serving New Brunswick families. This group strongly advocates for ongoing protection in schools against COVID-19. We are requesting the same for our children. I'll pause there. That's the first paragraph. So the Nova Scotia Pandemic Advisory Group there, that was that group that we talked about last week that had written that open letter during Nova Scotia's March break that was successful in getting their Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Robert Strang, to reconsider Nova Scotia had also announced that they were removing masks in schools and masks everywhere. And then the Nova Scotia Pediatric Pandemic Advisory Group, they got their letter out in time before the decision actually went into effect. And it it worked in Nova Scotia. Dr. Strang did change his mind. It was specifically that letter from the Pediatric Pandemic Advisory Group that caused him to change his mind and to keep the mask requirement for, for really quite a few more weeks in Nova Scotia. So in Nova Scotia, it happened in time for it to actually uh, make a difference. And in New Brunswick, the difference is that here, nobody apart from Pop and B spoke up before the decision actually took place and before uh, school resumed. And so in New Brunswick, this letter didn't ultimately uh, have any effect on the requirement to have masks in schools, but in Nova Scotia, it, it did. So that first paragraph is mentioning that Nova Scotia group. So their letter continues. We recently have seen lifting of COVID-19 protective measures. So this letter is dated April 1st and, and everything was lifted March 14th. However, cases and hospitalizations remain high. Ongoing staff shortages in healthcare and education settings are causing significant disruption in services. COVID-19 is an airborne virus. Masking and vaccination are well proven to be effective in decreasing transmission and severity of infection. Currently, masking in schools and daycares is no longer required by the New Brunswick Department of Education. This is in sharp contrast to measures taken by the rest of the Atlantic provinces. The governments of Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and Prince Edward Island have made the decision to continue to require masks in school to protect vulnerable populations. Given the importance of school for child development and well-being, this part's in bold, we strongly recommend returning to continuous mask use indoors for the rest of the academic year, unbold, so that students and staff can remain healthy and attend. The preschool population is not currently eligible for vaccination, bold. Therefore, we also recommend returning to continuous mask use indoors for childcare staff for the same duration, end of the bold. In addition to protecting children, Many healthcare and education workers are parents, and this will help moderate the number of workers off due to infection or exposure. 
We do not believe we are out of the woods yet with the COVID-19 pandemic. This will allow more time to improve vaccination rates in the 5 to 11 age group, better understand repeat infection timelines, and stabilize the healthcare and education workplace attendance. In summary, evidence suggests that properly fitted three-ply masks reduce risk of COVID-19 transmission in the school setting. Students are used to wearing masks, and there is no clear evidence they cause meaningful harm. Reinstating mask mandates in school and childcare settings is not only the most responsible course of action, it is also consistent with measures in the other three Atlantic provinces. Thank you in advance for considering this recommendation sincerely. And then uh, they've signed it. And so I'll just read a few of their names. That's Dr. Elena Newman, Dr. Catherine Harrington, Dr. Marianne McKenna. I know Dr. Sarah Gander was on there. It's uh, Dr. Sarah Gander's Twitter feed that has the picture of the two pages of the letter. The first page is the text and the second page is all of the, the signatures. So I really wanted to emphasize the fact that this letter happened and the content of the letter. It is the first time that a group of Canadian physicians signed an open letter stating that COVID is airborne. So it's really a, a very significant communication and like, thank goodness. I mean, I know that unfortunately, for whatever variety of reasons, that letter didn't get the mask requirement back in the schools. But I think it's it's really important to note that this group of professionals, 19 of them at the time, and then after they submitted the letter, it turned out that quite a few more signed on. I think by the end, it was up to like close to 40. And there's not all that many more pediatricians in the province than that. They, they really tried and they put together something that is supported by the evidence. I mean, gosh, almost a year later, isn't it quite something? We, we don't see any communication from anybody in an official role about COVID like that, like the pediatricians tried to do. It's quite remarkable. It was remarkable at the time. I know that I like gasped when I saw the COVID is airborne part of it. But I think that looking back now and we see how like lukewarm and equivocal almost everybody is about COVID in their communications. It's remarkable to see the really the evidence based and really caring and they really tried to do the right thing. I, I can't help but wonder maybe what effect that might have had if it happened to come out on March 1st and not April 1st. And there's nothing we can do about that. <laughs> and that's something that I was just going to chime in about because I know that and different folks in different areas of the country would have seen this too, because for us in New Brunswick, the lifting of universal masking in schools ended when students returned back to school after March break. And in New Brunswick, our March break was a week earlier and always is a week earlier than Nova Scotia's. So for Nova Scotia, whenever they started to become more involved and started to publicly advocate, they had a whole week additional to ours. So for this letter to come out in April 1st, the New Brunswick students had already been back for several weeks, but the Nova Scotia students, they'd only been back a little bit. And they'd already done advocacy work down there. So it's the staggering of the March breaks, but also what a problematic scenario as well, considering in March of 2020, there was so much talk about canceling March break trips and the safety of returning to school after March break. And then also that's when schools ended for many students. It was in March of 2020. So then to fast forward to March of 2022, of all of a sudden, 
the government has decided that we no longer need any protections anymore. And we saw different material coming out from school districts. I'm thinking of one picture in particular of a student triumphantly holding a mask. It appears like they're taking off their face and they're smiling. There was so much talk of, it's so nice to see your smiling faces again. There was also lots of talk of, if you're anxious about not wearing a mask, So there was lots of placing the exception, already deciding that people who were continuing to wear masks must feel anxious. That was a lot of the rhetoric back at that time, too. And none of that has any documented proof or evidence. And that's something that Pop and B discovered through one of our right to information requests was in April. When there were challenges and there were discussions of, we need information. Where is your research? Where is your documenting evidence that this is a good idea? We found out that there was none. And even worse than that, we found out, (laughs) Chris, I know that you were more involved in that project. Would you like to discuss? (laughs) The uh, 2022 was a year of finding out a lot and uh, finding out what was really deep under some of those rocks. I just, uh, I want to touch on that psychological framing that mm. that's we started seeing there. And I really, like it was everywhere. It was in the letters to parents. It was in the communications from government. It was in their press releases. This framing of continued concern about an unchanging level of illness in the community as being neurotic and anxious and and you know all of these psychological buzzwords and i think that was deliberate because acknowledging that fear or anxiety was not the only reason that somebody would be out there masking would imply that there are legitimate reasons to mask which in turn implies that the governments are abdicating their responsibility right they're either lying or they're not doing their jobs or maybe both Higgs was at the forefront of this. Kay mentioned his absolute dismissal of the PEDS letter. He did a little bit of a media tour earlier in the month of April, getting onto some of the morning radio shows and CBC and trying to justify what was happening. There were a lot of questions, as we mentioned last episode, and and how people were taken aback by this because they had grown to understand the data. They'd grown to understand what it implied. And to have the switch from both our chief medical officer of health and our premier implementing strict mandated protections at the beginning of the year and saying this is a serious situation. We didn't want to do this, but we told you we would if we had to, and now we have to. From going from that language to two months later saying they were going to let it rip with the exact same levels of sickness, hospitalization, and death occurring left people puzzling. So he was out there in the media trying to put an end to some of the the concerns. In one stunning display of uh, minimizing, at one point on one of the CBC morning shows, he mentioned that 70% of New Brunswick COVID deaths were due to do not resuscitate orders, if they even died of COVID at all. That's stunning, but that really set the tone for his response to any talk of COVID from that point on. 
he very quickly removed himself from discussing it in public after that. But that was the level of minimizing and disinformation that he was actively putting out there at the beginning of April. Um, And just thinking back to setting up those foundations in the spring of 2022, we were seeing different politicians, different officials from public health who were saying things in the media that were not true. There was no fact checking. There was no information that was being shared counter to that. There was no calling out that, whoa, what he said is not true. So it went from having public press briefings to lies and then to complete silence. It's almost like they're refusing to talk about it at this point. I can't even think of the last time we've heard any of them on the radio. And for New Brunswick, our last public health briefing was February 24th, 2022. We went from the truth to lies to silence. So I'm just looking through from March 15th, 2022, but I think it was sent to teachers maybe slightly before that. This is something that the teachers of New Brunswick received. It's an email that they got. And at the top of it, it says NBTF Group Insurance Trustees. That's the New Brunswick Teachers Federation. Below that, I accept the health challenge. This looks like it's some kind of a probably a regular health type message that's sent out to New Brunswick's teachers. This is what they were sent by their teachers federation that is supposed to be helping to look out for them. After two years of living in the shadow of a pandemic, All restrictions are being lifted this week, which results in various reactions from our members. Some feel like they are able to live or breathe again, while others are confused or feel disoriented at the idea of returning to, quote, a normal life, quote, too quickly, even though this change was expected and hoped for. This feeling is quite normal and shows that we had succeeded in creating new reference points for ourselves and had become used to the reality imposed by this pandemic. So that is what New Brunswick teachers received from their MBTF group insurance trustees. That language is so vile. And then with our long COVID right to information request, we come to find out that in March of 2022, our government, which is also the employer for these teachers, had been receiving every two weeks high quality evidence summaries from the Public Health Agency of Canada's Office of the Chief Science Officer. Every two weeks, evidence summaries that spelled out black and white that long COVID has no cure. The only way to avoid long COVID is to not catch COVID. And that long COVID affects women more than men. And here we have this female-dominated industry of education and the female-dominated industry of healthcare. For both of those, the government of New Brunswick is the big employer. And this New Brunswick Teachers Federation that is supposed to be advocating for and helping these teachers sends them this horrific, insidious crap. After two years of living in the shadow of a pandemic, all restrictions are being lifted this week, which results in various reactions from our members. Some feel like they are able to live or breathe again, while others are confused or feel disoriented at the idea of returning to a normal life too quickly. Like. Education staff in New Brunswick 
have died from COVID complications. Education staff in New Brunswick, I, I know this because I was told this, there are people who were working as education staff in New Brunswick who caught COVID, who have since died since this was sent. They died because of COVID complications. They didn't have to die. They could still be here today. And I just find it really awful and disgusting and unacceptable that this is coming from our education system, where the whole point is to teach people to be critical thinkers, to teach people how to be leaders, to foster critical thinking and being brave enough to stand up for what's right and to go against the grain and to look out for vulnerable people. But really, at the very base of education is like learning how to read and synthesize information so that you can know stuff. And through the pandemic, if you were somebody who had access to information about the pandemic, you would have learned the fact that masks were helpful in reducing the spread. We had no influenza spread while masks were required. Masks clearly worked. If you knew how to synthesize information and you were paying attention, you knew that New Brunswick actually had a objectively high rate of cases in March 2022. At that time, it was very common for news media to very regularly report COVID case numbers all across the nation. And we would regularly be informed you would have to work very hard to be ignorant of case numbers. Very frequently on the news, you'd be hearing about Nova Scotia's numbers and New Brunswick's numbers. And then if you were listening to, you know, more national news, you'd be hearing about Canada's numbers. You'd be hearing about different provinces. New Brunswick had three times Canada's national average of cases at the time that we dropped protections. And this is a disease that is transmissible, spreads from person to person. So what happens when you drop the protections and you are already starting from a high number of cases, more people get sick. The communication that parents got on March 4th from every district used the very same language. I'm looking at the one from Anglophone School District South right now. So the one for ASDS says, Dear ASDS families, last week, the province announced they will be removing all remaining COVID-19 measures on March 14th, 2022. There will be a few important changes for our schools after March break. One, masks will no longer be required for students, staff, or visitors at any time in our schools or buses. Two, effective immediately, proof of vaccination will no longer be required for students to participate in any extracurricular and sports activities. Students wishing to join clubs, committees, and other activities may do so, regardless of immunization status. Also, spectators are now permitted to attend all extracurricular activities without proof of vaccination. Please note, sports teams currently in mid-season will continue to follow the vaccination protocol and no new players will be permitted to join at this time. As well, proof of vaccination requirement will remain in place at this time for GMB employees and volunteers in our schools. And I'll just note that there was never a vaccination requirement for the 5 to 11s. That vaccine was only available in New Brunswick starting late November of 2021. So for any school, sport, restaurant, tourism, travel, there was never a vaccination requirement for the 5 to 11 age group. The only vaccination requirement ever applied to the kids 12 and up because that vaccine had been available to them since the summertime of 2021. Point number three, after March 4th, 2022, families will no longer need to inform the school if their child tests positive for COVID-19 and we will no longer be updating the COVID-19 dashboard. 
as with missed time for any reason, families will still be responsible for, be, for informing the school of their child's absences. Point four, isolation rules are no longer in place. However, as always, if your child is feeling unwell and displaying cold or flu-like symptoms, you should keep them home until they are feeling better. See the graphic here, and it's a hyperlink, for general guidance on when to keep a child home from school and some important reminders about attendance. It is important to note that while students and staff will no longer be required to wear a mask in school, some will prefer to continue wearing a mask and it is important that this be respected. We understand that families will have different perspectives on COVID-19 safety measures. While some families are relieved to see the protocols ending, there are families, students, and staff who will experience some anxiety as restrictions and safety measures are lessened. Everyone has experienced this pandemic differently, and we ask that everyone be treated with respect and kindness. While formal safety measures will be lifted, we ask that you encourage your child to continue frequent hand washing slash sanitizing, proper cough slash sneeze etiquette, and monitoring for symptoms. Hand sanitizer will continue to be available in the schools. We are again permitted to hold extracurricular events such as dances and end of year activities. There is much planning and organizing that happens in lead up to these events and schools will have to assess what is feasible and what resources they have available. Uh, it goes on to talk about the events. We understand that each family's readiness and comfort level may be a little different at this time. The last two years have not been easy. We hope that with the removal of restrictions, our students will feel optimistic as they head into the break and excited to finish the school year strong. We thank students, staff, and families for their hard work and wish everyone a great March break. Have a safe and restful week. Zoe Watson, Superintendent ASDS. So all four of the Anglophone districts had very similar letters. The, the language was nearly identical and in some cases completely identical. This was clearly written for all of the superintendents to distribute and they signed their names to this communication that tells all the parents that cases aren't going to be counted in schools anymore, that there's no safety measures for COVID anymore, and that it's all subjective and it's all about experiences and feelings and that there may be a few people who are anxious and choose to continue wearing masks. I just can't believe that the institutions of learning and the people that had a duty of care, a legal duty of care for the staff and students in their buildings were willing to sign their names on these letters. And in many cases, this letter was the last and most recent communication about COVID that any New Brunswick family received to this date. And I just don't know what to say about that. I left my job that I used to have working for the province of New Brunswick, and I left it over a mismatch between my values and the values of, of the job. And when I got this message from my superintendent, I thought, oh, my God, some of these people are going to quit over this because this is horrific. This is so dangerous and it's so wrong. And none of them quit over this. Like these letters from these superintendents are so dangerous and so misleading. And they come from our education system that is supposed to teach people to think critically. And they're the most dangerous bullshit that's been produced by this province. I can't believe these people sign their names to this. It's shocking. It's not neutral. It's not factual. Even if they wanted to craft something 
that left room for people to revel in the new simulation of normal. They could have made even one factual statement about masks. They could have had a sentence in there that said, while masks are now a personal choice, we would like to note that mask wearing reduces disease transmission. Like they just couldn't even do that. I think like it's infuriating revisiting these things and and seeing them and like to your point Kay, where he's like oh well they could have done this they could have put this information in these this is the source of higher learning right this is the academic path that we all go through and hopefully we come out as better people more clearly thinking more intuitive and more intelligent in order to interact with our world and come to some logical conclusions about what's happening around us and that's what when you start looking at it, you take a step back from that and you see how insidious it is. You start to see a design that's in that narrative because this is these are claims framing continued concern as a psychological impairment, more or less, is a bold claim that is being stated from an institution which has some goodwill and some authority to it. And so people gladly take what is being provided from these institutions as fact, particularly if it confirms a bias or an interest in moving on from this and forgetting it and putting it behind them. They are that much more likely to take that information on and go for it. And I, this methodology, we see it throughout all of the communication at this point in the province. And, pro and this is probably very common throughout the entire world where you see these justifications, these boldly stated comforting lies told to people and it quells their concerns. And if there are errors in those statements or if they're completely untrue or, or the facts are off, or even if they're corrected, they're always corrected after the fact when everybody else has left the conversation, everybody else has gotten what they needed from that conversation and they've gone and they've moved on. Well-meaning people who have never experienced firsthand any reason to distrust these offices of authority, they take this information at face value and they, and they go. And there's nothing more to be concerned about. Underlying all of this, there's two real main things that I see in these letters and from the communications and from government and from the uh, presentation of information at this particular point in the year. Two things. One is this framing of continued concern as neuroses. That's going to make people shy away from continued mitigations. It's going to make people look at people who are still concerned as having a psychological deficiency. It's going to nudge people towards normalizing whatever degree of death and disability is happening because they've been told that that's psychologically healthy. And the second thing that's really underpinning all of these communications is, in very plain words, COVID-19 is not enough of a concern for you to do anything about. And COVID-19 is not enough of a concern for us, being the government or the Department of Education, to do anything about. Mm. I remember that month, people were so upset because we still got and we still get lice notices, but you'll never get another COVID exposure notice from the school. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's baffling.
And kind of continuing on with what happened as the year went on, what happened as the months went on as listeners and as I know for myself and others is we sincerely hoped for the best and wanted to be proven wrong. But I know we were all very concerned seeing this strategy and plan by various organizations that had no foundation in reason. And then as the plan went through, we saw numbers increase. April was a huge spike in cases in New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada. I'm just, I'm imagining the graph in my mind and it was just this giant jump. And people started saying around that time of, oh, it's because we wore masks for so long that now we're not used to having these exposures to germs anymore. So we're just catching up on the flus that we missed before. That doesn't make sense. There, there is no evidence. There is no reasoning. There is no logic behind that. But it's a hopeful thought. So people went with that and they used that reasoning for having a consistent cold or flu or severe illness in the months of April and May and June and July. People were talking about having colds and flus in July and how this was a normal thing because so many people were experiencing this. And there is so little data to show it because, well, we saw everything return to normal. We also saw a complete lack of data to show what was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like right there, we saw them say, we aren't tracking this anymore. <laughs> and like, of course, because it would have been, it would have shown that they were liars and and that this was done in bad faith and that, that this was done on purpose to infect our kids and thus everyone our kids come in contact with. And for the previous 15 months, we had gone to great lengths to keep from infecting whole classrooms and flipping the switch. All of a sudden, it had been decided that instead the plan was to infect entire classrooms and they just didn't want to have to be held responsible for the consequences of that. And school cases were magically no longer tracked. Ugh. I'll just mention a couple of dates for, for March and April, just so that we get them in our timeline. March 7th is when Pop NB launched the petition to keep universal masks in schools until at least the end of April and to have them removed based on data. Those of us who authored the petition and spoke about it in the media and worked on getting it presented in the legislature from the time that we started working on it until the day that the Nova Scotia group spoke up, that was two weeks. And that took a lot of guts because I think that a lot of us really truly thought and hoped that if something about this was dangerous, if something about this was wrong, that physicians would speak up, that somebody would speak up, right? That somebody in a little bit of power, with a little bit of authority, with a little bit of knowledge, with a little bit of training would speak up. And nobody did. But the the group of us that worked on that petition, we really thought that, like you said, worst case, you know, we'd love to be wrong. 
we'd love for this to be a nothing burger. Like, oh, the masks were dropped and we had a little wavelet, a little bump, but then everything was fine. You know, that would have been awesome. That would have been so great. But we knew enough about how this disease works and we were just parents. So where was everybody else? We have several universities in New Brunswick. We have biology professors. We have physicians. We have a medical school. We have nursing programs. We have unions. We have people who study evolution. We have people who study viruses. It brought me to tears today, preparing for tonight, to think back on the fact that there would be, with our taxes in our government, we pay an entire COVID-19 response team. Where the hell were they? Where the hell was public health? Like we pay the salaries of hundreds of people whose actual day job it is to understand the consequences of a policy change like this. And where the hell were they then? And where have they been in the 11 months since then? Like where are these people? Because I am mostly a mom. There's gotta be so many other people in this province who are eminently more qualified to speak up on this than I am. Where are those people? And we were prescient enough and brave enough in those two weeks between March 4th and March 17th, when nobody else spoke up about how bad of an idea this was and how obvious the consequences were. Nobody else said jack shit. And we were the ones that said something, not that it changed anything, but I just want people to know how hard that was because you really would have to think that if there was something worth worrying about, that somebody else would have said something and they didn't. The other thing that happened at that time, Dominic Cardi was out of the country and on vacation. He was our education minister at the time. Jennifer Russell was out of the country and on vacation. She was our chief medical officer of health at the time. Connie Keating, the MBTA president, was on vacation at the time. And her vacation didn't even end until Tuesday, March 15th. They even threw in an extra day there so that she couldn't even be expected to deal with any of this on the Monday. Like, I get it that we had 15 months of some of these people working at a pace and with pressures that they had never before encountered in their lives. I still think that it was incredibly irresponsible for this government to enact this sudden massive change that resulted in mass infection and to not have the responsibility to stagger the vacations of the people involved that could have possibly done anything. I mean, it's pretty obvious why these people were all on vacation and nobody could be held accountable. Nobody could answer any questions. All the teachers that we know, the education staff that we know, they were trying to get in touch with MBTA and NBTF. They couldn't reach anybody. Everybody was on vacation. So March 17th is when the Pediatric Pandemic Advisory Group in Nova Scotia put out their open letter. And like you mentioned, Cheryl, that was Nova Scotia's March break and their masks were due to be dropped at the same time after their March break ended, but their March break just was a week later than ours. So they finally spoke up good for them. And I was really relieved and felt very validated to have that group speak up and express so many concerns that were similar to ours. Like we had to write that petition ourselves. We had to come up with all of that logic and reasoning ourselves. We weren't using any physician group's notes on anything because at that time, no physician group had said anything. Like we were the ones sitting there on Zoom at night over March break saying, okay, 
this is airborne. Our kids spend all day in poorly ventilated classrooms together with the same people all day. That's an incredibly long exposure time. Uh, the vaccination rates are terrible. Like we were the ones putting all that together. Then on April 1st, we had the letter from the pediatricians in New Brunswick. And on April 4th, I just want to get it in the record that the New Brunswick Medical Society put out a statement on April 4th and said that the New Brunswick Medical Society encourages the reinstatement of mask mandates in schools and childcare. So, you know, that was that was good of, of them to make that statement. And later in April, we got the Lamrock report that the child and youth advocate yeah, that is probably the other really significant situation that occurred in April is that child and youth advocate Kelly Lamrock undertook a report on the removal of protections, particularly in schools. So his lens was uh, much more narrow, uh, but he undertook that and uh, put out his report on April 22nd. And this, there's a lot to this. We could probably do a whole episode on it. Maybe we will. I think we'll touch on it sort of briefly. Briefly here, uh, knowing that we'll come back to it. But there are a few things I do want to put in here uh, just to kind of get the context of the situation. So as part of his investigation, he took a look at the entire process within the government and his access to information inside the government offices to figure out how and why this decision was made to remove all protections. Very specifically, again, as I mentioned, looking at the education system, his interests being the uh, interests of children. He reached out to both Dominic Cardi and the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Jennifer Russell, uh, to get information from them. Their responses to his questions, including his letters, are in the final report. We'll link that report in the show notes so people can take a look at it. But there are a couple of things I'll, I'll highlight here. Overall, it was a very damning condemnation of what had occurred in New Brunswick at the time. Lamrock sums it up like this, quote, we could not see any signs that the hallmarks of transparent decision, explanation, predictive benchmarks, measurement and accountability were being provided publicly. Given that part of the stated reason for the lifting of the mask mandate and other restrictions was that individuals would be empowered to make their own decisions and supported in their choices, this public sense of vagueness and confusion was not in the interests of children, end quote. He goes on to basically say in this report that it was a mistake to lift the mandates without any information, that there was not significant enough data to support it, that the decision making process was flawed. And the report goes on to make eight recommendations to government, including developing systems to determine exactly how a mask mandate should be put in place for schools, how it should be lifted, and what systems would be put in place to monitor the outcomes of those decisions, both putting them in and, and taking them out. Of course, none of these suggestions were implemented by the government. This report came out, was summarily dismissed by the sitting government, and we really haven't heard anything about it since. This does tie a little bit into our work, though, with the Freedom of Information, Right to Information requests. In this same month, early on, we submitted a right to information request asking about what evidence or information was used in the decision to lift the mandates. And after the Lamrock report, in which we saw Jennifer Russell's response, where she cited numerous reasons for lifting the mandates, all qualitative, anecdotal things that she'd heard about from Department of Education, we submitted a right to information request asking for evidence of the harms of masking. 
the harms of masking had become a bit of a talking point to Russell in her media tour around this time. So Jennifer Russell had been making media appearances and sort of subtly dropping this concept of the harms of masking, making vague citations to reports that had come out tying mask use to learning loss and mental health impacts and and things like this. Now, we did some work looking into these things. We could not find any of the studies that she was alluding to. She'd never mentioned them by name. And when the Lamrock report came out, she went so far as to actually list some of the information that she had been basing these statements on. As I mentioned, most of these were anecdotal or qualitative type of assessments that she had made. But she did make note of one document, which later turned out to not even exist. Some of the media at the time reported on this, that there was this one-sided document. And then after it was shown that she had essentially fabricated the evidence that she had claimed supported this decision, again, nothing came of it. It just went away. I think you, you've made the point a few times about this and about the long COVID right to information request that pre-pandemic, these kinds of revelations about really unscrupulous work would have resulted in multiple people losing their jobs. Absolutely. It's when you when you read the response, her letter, her response to Kelly Lamrock, it's so disjointed and it's filled with these leaps of logic that you would attribute to people like conspiracy theorists or people who call the pandemic a hoax. It's that level of, of strange ties that she's trying to establish. And outside of that, she falls back on this desperate statement after she you know after she's made all of these claims, which when you read through are hollow. She falls back on this statement that most jurisdictions across Canada have made the decision to discontinue masking in schools, you know, which doesn't mean anything. It's just a statement that other people are have also done it, not that they've done it based on any established evidence or any kind of incentive that makes any logical quantitative sense, just that they're doing it. And then again, this citation to the document, which was supposedly written by a psychologist, which Russell first claimed concluded that masking harmed children and then eventually confirmed didn't actually even exist. I'll just mention about the the timing of all that, too. When he wrote to her asking for her justifications, like her evidence and her decision making for, for having made this decision, the due date that he gave her was Friday, April 8th. And our right to information request that we only received, you know, months later showed that on Monday, April 4th is when she sent that email to some people within the government. And it was, hi, Annie, can you please find me negative data or messaging on youth and masks? Or I don't have it in front of me, but she sent that message out on Monday, April 4th. She had gotten this request from him to provide her reasoning on March 30th, which was the Wednesday. Uh, is when he dated it March 30th. I mean, I'm sure she actually knew that this was coming before that. And he asked to have a reply by April 8th. So that gave her a week and a half. And it was Monday, April 4th that she said, hey, can you guys find me some data, negative data or messaging about masks on Monday, April 4th, when masks had been removed March 14th. 
And then we find out, you know, it's it's only later that we're able to piece together all these dates that the pediatrician's letter had come out on Friday, April 1st, and the NBMS statement had come out on Monday, April 4th. So here's these other groups of professionals, other groups of physicians, calmly, rationally, with facts, asking for masks to come back on April 1st and April 4th. And then there she is on April 4th saying, I really need some negative data and messaging about masks. Um, <laughs> and then she submits this on April 8th. And then we only found out later that she basically was on leave immediately after that. She pretty much never came back for initially weeks. A journalist tried to contact her later in April and got an out of office message that said she'd be back on May 2nd. And then I think that even came and went. And then it found, we found out, you know, later that she was on leave. So you know, that was kind of the last thing that she did was send this reply. Um, And for anybody that wants to read it, like you mentioned, we'll have a link to it because I know when this did come out, again, it was really validating to me. And I knew when I read it that this was very special, uh, unique to have this level of detail, to have this level of work go into something like this. And I know I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'm new to advocacy. I'm new to this. And I know that there are people out there who do so much more work and sacrifice so much and work on things for many, many, many years and they never see vindication like this. And and we we saw the vindication in this report. Yeah. But once again, it didn't actually result in any kids being any safer. That was a turning point for a lot of us. What we found when we read this was a level of professionalism and expectation on part of the child and youth advocate. And the responses to that very reasonable amount of professionalism that you would expect from decision makers who have authority over policy that impacts the health of the province's children to see that information coming back without any competence, any display of compassion was very disheartening. And it was at this point adding to the pile of indifference and disregard that we had seen in the form of the letter from the pediatricians, from the consensus of information that we had at the time, from scientists, from educators, from advocates. This pile was growing too big to bear at this point. And it was this fact that led us as a group to submit the right to information request asking for the evidence of harms of masking. This had become such a cornerstone of of the argument. And it was said and just further questions were hand waved away. It's the harms of masking. And that was where the questioning stopped. So we submitted a right to information request to find out about the harms of masking. We wouldn't get a response to that until August. When we did, looking back, we saw the timeline that you just laid out, Kay, that Jennifer Russell received the request for a response immediately or you know, very soon afterwards, went around to her people trying to gather any evidence to support what she had been saying in the public sphere for weeks, only to find there wasn't any. Because she couldn't find any evidence, the only evidence she could find actually contradicted those claims. She copied almost verbatim an internal email uh, sent within the Department of Education. They were also responding to requests for information and justification for these things and stuck that in her letter and sent it to Lamrock and left. Mm. And for anyone that if you're hearing this and you're like, oh, no, come on, that can't be true. Like you're exaggerating. You can read all of this in their own words. We have the full responses to our right to information requests. If you just go to protectnb.ca 
on our website, we have a list of the right to information requests that we've sent in and copies of everything we got back. So you can, you too can go through the special hell of reading for yourself that the people that we pay to keep our kids safe and our whole society safe are so horrific at their jobs and are so duplicitous and honestly are just giving the fields of medicine and education a really bad name. And you can read all of the terrible emails for yourself because that is indeed sadly what happened. And I know just kind of thinking about this time as well and looking back on it with hindsight, we currently don't have the data on this. We do have more stories and personal information on it. But during this time when masking was recommended to be re-implemented in schools by pediatricians, by the child and youth care advocate, many children in New Brunswick were exposed to COVID repeatedly during this time. And now that we know about the long-term implications of that, I know prior I mentioned how people were talking about how they had colds and flus in May, June, July, August. Many people had symptoms from their COVID infection that never went away. And these symptoms were far beyond a cold or a flu. Some of these symptoms involved having trouble walking, having trouble breathing, having trouble concentrating, not being able to walk upstairs anymore, having heart palpitations. So many more things that are happening to people and happen to people. And this is information that the government knew would happen and they went and did it anyway. And so many people are now living with these long-term effects. There are now more and more individuals publicly talking about their long COVID symptoms because the best way to avoid long COVID is to avoid COVID. But now where we currently live in a place where there's zero universal protections in place, it is very, very hard to avoid COVID. So it's very hard for people to avoid long COVID and long COVID can be disabling. It can change the way you live your daily life for adults and for children. And the government knew this at that time and still went ahead and still continues to go ahead with this to date. And not only did they do that, which is chilling hearing you summarize it like that. They did this and they knew so much about long COVID and they didn't tell anybody. They didn't tell the New Brunswick physicians. They didn't tell the nurses. They didn't tell the superintendents. They didn't tell the teachers. They didn't warn any of their employees or any of their citizens that they were unleashing something that had significant rates of unresolved long-term symptoms and significant rates of other sequelae that people 
want to avoid and that people make decisions to avoid in other settings, right? Like people do what they can to avoid developing diabetes. People do what they can to avoid developing, you know, to avoid ending up with strokes. Like our population takes so much medication and there are other interventions that are done at great expense and at great effort to avoid People do smoking cessation. That's such a big thing that takes up time, money, resources, support, lifestyle changes, medication to bring down high blood pressure, medication to keep people from having strokes. So much medication, so many doctor's visits, so many interventions are done in this population to prevent these sequelae. And here comes this new disease that we're just getting a whole bunch of evidence that shows that getting this disease, even if you have a mild or even asymptomatic course of the disease, increases the relative risks for a whole host of undesirable health conditions. And our government that is supposedly like so broke and can't afford the health care and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, yeah, let's just fill the schools with it and let's just take it to the communities and let's just let it rip. Like what? (sighs) They didn't warn anybody. At that time, Blaine Higgs was still saying and has never corrected himself that it's just like a cold. Sometimes you won't even know that you had it. And when somebody asked him about long COVID, he said, public health has never uh, informed me that that's a concern. He said that in April 2022. Which we now know is very likely a a blatant lie. If anybody is interested in hearing more about our long COVID RTI, I would definitely suggest you go back to episode two, where we talk in depth about that very disturbing degree of information, not only in province of New Brunswick, but really in every province and territory in Canada. Very disturbing. Yeah. It was radio silence after this. So at the end of April, originally we were told that there were 35 deaths in the month. That was later revised to 59, which it's at this point where the fidelity of the death metrics start to unwind. At the time, we were looking at 384 deaths due to COVID. Again, that was later revised. Nationwide, in April, there were 1,800 Canadian COVID deaths, which brought the total up to 39,800. So when we go into May and even beyond, things got fairly quiet on the COVID front for New Brunswick. There were intermittent stories here and there. Provinces across the country continued to gradually or quickly remove mandates. PEI in May removed first removed their public mask mandate. And then later in the month, near the end of the month, removed their mask mandate in schools. And I can remember working with advocates from the island, watching them go through some of the same emotional roller coasters that we had at the end of February and the beginning of March. At the end of May, we had another 35 deaths, again, later revised to 56, which brought our total to 419. So we didn't see any real slowing of deaths, despite the public consciousness evolving to a place where they felt that the pandemic was behind them. Canada-wide, we had 2,400 COVID deaths in the month of May, which brought us to 41,400. In June, we really start to see the data slide, particularly with deaths. 
Alberta lifts their isolation uh, requirements early in the month. Quebec lifts their mask mandate. They were one of the last provinces to lift their mask mandate. Quebec being a province that was very heavily hit for the entirety of the pandemic, and particularly in the year of 2022, when we had Omicron raging through. Uh, that led us to a very low death count for New Brunswick, which we don't have any verification of yet. There's a period which exists between June and August, like June, July, where there's sort of a black hole for COVID data. In October, the province released a revision to COVID deaths going back to the beginning of the pandemic. And it covered at that point a period between March 2020 and May 2022. They later revised deaths after August, but we don't really know what has happened in the months of June and July. They continue to report on deaths. And what I can say from the official numbers is at the end of July, we are up to 447 on the official count. In Canada, we are up to 43,250. When August came around, COVID was all but gone from public consciousness. But it was at that point that our group started receiving some of the replies for our initial right to information requests. The first response was to our request for information on what was used to justify the removal of mandates. And what we got back was fairly puzzling. So we had asked for documentation or data which supported the removal of mask mandates and other pandemic protections. And what we got back was a bunch of emails discussing and one single document, which was a paper, a working paper titled A Literature Review and Meta-Analysis of the Effects of Lockdowns on COVID-19 Mortality. So this was something that was published by the John Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics. It's not a peer-reviewed paper. It's a, basically a white paper, like an, an opinion piece published by the Department of Economics. Now, interestingly, this thing has been very widely debunked. And we did a Substack piece on this that goes into a lot of the details and provides a lot of the rationale behind how imperfect this thing was. But of note is the fact that the economists who were involved in developing this paper were from far-right think tanks that were developed or funded by people like the Koch brothers, Big Oil, such as uh, Exxon, for example. And some of the people who were involved in the original planning and development stage for the Great Barrington Declaration. So these people obviously have made this document with a vested interest in establishing a narrative that that lockdowns are harmful. And this was the one document that we received from our right to information request. The media picked up on this a little bit and uh, asked some questions of the government who didn't really provide any answers other than to say, well, we looked at a lot of documents. We made a lot of decisions. People aren't privy to the information we have. The typical thought kind of talking points that we had heard in the past. And it went away again. Nothing came of this. Later in the month, actually not very much later, in August, we received the response to our right to information request asking for information on the harms of masking. And this was the response that included what we had talked about earlier, very specifically the emails from Jennifer Russell asking for proof of the negative harms of masking in children before she was impelled to respond to Kelly Lamrock. As we stated earlier, there was no 
evidence. The only evidence provided to her in those emails contradicted that claim. And so she plagiarized an email from the Department of Education, which had some anecdotal discussion points about different things that they had been seeing about kids being uh, depressed or, you know, having trouble concentrating or other things that you might expect children to have in the middle of a pandemic where they might be afraid that they themselves or their loved ones could be lost. I'll mention something additional about the Lemrock report. He concludes it by saying that he's not pursuing a formal investigation at this time, but that it is an option. And then the government just, you know, did nothing with the report, didn't respond to it, didn't integrate it into any of their approaches. And so a little while later, many of us contacted the Office of the Child and Youth Advocate and requested, as per the report, that his office do undertake a formal investigation as his report said that he would or could. And basically we all got back a form letter and uh, I remember it saying like, if we pursued this, it would take all of our resources and we wouldn't be able to do any of the other important work that we do to protect the well-being of New Brunswick children. And it was just so deflating to get that form response and, and that kind of it answer like, oh, has this all been like a a showy dance of like, if you guys don't clean up your room, I'm going to get mad. And then, okay, can you get, please get mad? Oh no, we're not actually going to get mad. You know, like, uh. (laughs) And that's where whenever thinking about this series and thinking about a year in review, I was thinking about everything that we lived through and everything that we experienced and saw over the course of 2022. And I chose the title Foundations of Failure because it's setting up the building blocks that right now are quite strong for people to pretend that everything is fine. And it's not. There's pediatricians, there's doctors, there's neurologists, there's immunologists, there's so many people who know this inside out and backwards that are saying this current policy of nothing is horrific. There's disability advocates, there's folks across the country, across various countries saying, what is happening? happening. This is wrong. People are dying. People are becoming disabled. People are not able to live their daily life now because of becoming disabled from this disease. And yet, as of this recording, many people are living their lives as if it was 2019. And It's the foundations of failure that the government set up that so many other organizations are happy to comply. So many organizations, schools, institutions, groups, all sorts of different places are just happy to pretend that an airborne disease that causes so many negative effects is currently in the air, that they breathe. And they are taking no steps to stop it from happening. And we see that thought process. It's like the complacency kind of evolve beyond that. 
more recently, like in the past few months or the last few months of the of the year 2022, we see a marginalization of those COVID advocates that you mentioned, like and of the the science or or the information behind that concept, and some very problematic misconceptions about how viruses and disease or even the human immune system work. Like you mentioned earlier, that this bizarro concept of immunity debt that surfaced and really got legs for for quite a long time. What's really happening is all this terrible information is backfilling the void that's been left by the complete absence of communication from government. There's, like we said, probably a hundred times, even just in this episode, there's been nothing. There's been no communication from government or any office of the government, any level about this disease. And what's happening, I think that's deliberate, definitely deliberate, because the government's playing this kind of numbers game where they hope that survivor bias is going to get people who haven't experienced explicit firsthand negative outcomes on side with their narrative that it's mild and it's just a cold. And those people who get through unscarred by it will reiterate that uh, and it'll forward that information while those who are, are saddled with the negative outcomes, long COVID, death of loved ones, or you know, death themselves, are, are going to remain burdened by that situation and not be able to communicate that the dead can't speak. Well, and this is what I actually I had a realization while listening to this conversation, and it's that the return to normal has been. <laughs> The return to normal of ignoring people with long-term medical complications. Speaking, right? Speaking as myself, who has had long-term medical complications, all of the terminology that has been used of, you may feel anxious, maybe you need to do X, Y, and Z, but X, Y, and Z doesn't have anything to do with what you're experiencing. All of these things that have been used on a societal level, people with disabilities and chronic health issues have experienced many of them firsthand. And if this wasn't an airborne disease, if this was one of the various conditions that currently exist, it would be treated just like it was before a pandemic of you sick people go over there, don't take up too much space. All of us healthy people are trying to have fun. Don't remind us that you're sick. Stop talking, please. We're not like you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It becomes a, instead of a state failing, it becomes a moral failing. If somebody gets COVID and they get through it and they're great, wonderful. You're back with us. You're you're part of the fit group. And if you don't, just like you said, you remove yourself. And then the language which has evolved from, oh, you must be uncomfortable. You must be anxious about COVID all the way to if you talk about COVID now, you're fear mongering. Or if you happen to have been unlucky enough to develop long-term consequences of COVID, then nothing is ever said about COVID. What people talk about is the moral and lifestyle failings of the person who was struck down. 
right? They had pre-existing conditions. They didn't mm-hmm. eat enough vegetables. They didn't exercise, whatever crazy bullshit that people will do, do anything to create a psychological barrier between their life in which they are morally superior and the life of the person who has been hit by this disease, whatever it takes in their mind to disassociate any possibility of that happening to them so that they continue on this deranged course of ignoring the voices of people who are calling for some sense and some judiciousness in protecting one another. But And here's the thing is that we've seen now firsthand if folks are given the choice of wearing a mask to protect the vulnerable en masse, they won't do it. We now see that. And for people who are vulnerable, we now know that and we continue on. But for all of the folks taking zero precautions, every time they are exposed to COVID, every time they are exposed to these various soups of germs and diseases that are floating around, COVID may uncover a pre-existing condition that they did not know about. Every time someone is exposed to COVID, they're playing the odds of having ongoing symptoms that never go away. And these symptoms can come back several months after having had COVID. All of this information is known. All of this information is available by the Public Health Agency of Canada. It's all on their website. They did a long report on it in October of 2022. It's all online. It's all true. And there's folks going around trying to pretend that an airborne disease is not happening. But in reality, every time they get COVID, they run the risk of becoming someone who they themselves would not mask to protect. Well said. I hate it. Yeah. Well, the disability community, they were one of the first raising the warning here, right? They were one of the first to try to paint a picture of what living with disability looks like. And people are experiencing that now. And it's not just the psychological or physiological impact of that disability. It is the sociological impact of being othered and abandoned by the system that we have been told and taught is there to ensure that we either don't become disabled or if we do there'll be systems in place to ensure that we can continue living and that's yeah. another that's another tool i think that people use to justify their inaction is that oh if you know if i make somebody sick and, and they lose their job there's systems in place to take care of them there aren't there aren't <laughs> There aren't. They don't there exist. Are. No. Or, and there or can't the, possibly be for the numbers of people with long COVID that we are generating yeah. by our current policies. It, and I love, I think Joe Vipon uses this analogy. A lot of people use this analogy. Evolution happens when you have transmission. Every infection is an opportunity for mutation, right? And so with this extremely contagious virus that keeps on infecting and reinfecting, COVID is training to keep beating humans, right? It's always training. And so this analogy that I've heard Joe Vipon use and others use is it's like COVID is coming out of the tap in the bathroom in your bathtub, right? We've cranked the faucets now. We're going for maximum COVID, right? 
we are trying to see just how much COVID can our society endure before we're willing to do anything. The tap is cranked to maximum COVID. The tub's overflowing. We have increasing numbers of hospitalizations in Canada. And you can look up T. Ryan Gregory is a evolutionary biologist. And he takes the our world and data graphs. And he just shows the number of Canadians hospitalized with COVID in 2022, 2023. The lows are getting higher. The lows are never dropping below the previous low. We're climbing. So the level of the bath water is rising, right? It's overflowing the tub. Nobody in power is doing anything about turning off or slowing down the taps. Everybody is just like, well, we clearly need a taller bathtub. They want to hire more doctors. They want to hire more nurses. They want to open more beds. They want to be able to deal with more sick people, but they're not looking at effective steps to reduce the number of sick people turning off the tap. And we know how to do this. We did this. It's an airborne virus, which has never been acknowledged by any of the provincial leadership. The aerosol nature has been acknowledged federally, at least in words, if not in deeds. So we need to actually use effective measures like improving indoor air quality and monitoring indoor air quality and giving out free respirators, requiring people to use respirators, which is a, a high filtration mask that's actually designed and tested to be able to protect you from airborne aerosolized hazards. We do know what to do to turn off the tap and yet nobody's doing it. So yeah, so we are every single day generating more long COVID cases and we have a system that can't handle this much disability. And yet here we are just promoting uh, more disability. It's ridiculous. Part of it too is that they're entering a system just like what Chris said, where as people become long-term impacted, where illness now affects their ability to live their daily life like they used to, there's the sociological impact. And then like Kay said, there's the lack of doctors and the lack of medical infrastructure impact. And then there's the financial impact. I can speak for the province of New Brunswick. If you have a doctor, who supports that you are unable to work full time for an extended period of time, you may qualify for long-term disability. Long-term disability in New Brunswick is $750 a month. If you make more than $500 in a month, you get cut off completely. That's the that's, system people are entering. Oh, that's horrific. Yeah, it's institutional poverty. It's institutional poverty for people who are living in bodies that where they can no longer work. And now they are living in a framework where they don't have money to eat, to have shelter over their heads, to feed their children. Those are all government choices that existed before COVID. And those are all government choices that currently exist today that every day more people enter into. It's infuriating because it's on the basis of those systems that many people don't have to interact with, mm -hmm. thankfully, that the state bases its authority and its legitimacy on, right? It's like like uh, we said a minute ago, people's ability to accept what they perceive as low risk, coming back to the pandemic anyway, is at least in part underpinned by this faith that if something happens to them, if if they get long COVID or, or if they're you know impacted, that there's a system in place to make it better. 
either to fix them or to put them back in a situation where they're not going to lose their job or, or, or bring them back or home. to, or their home mm-hmm. or, or like all of it to lose everything, to bring them back to this perceived place of stability Yolo. that they have today. <laughs> and what we've seen particularly over this past year, like we haven't even really touched on the hospital situation, but particularly over this past year is that system is not, and probably never was really there that they're basing this faith on the hospital and the healthcare situation in our province and, and across Canada is dire in this province. Even in the last few weeks, we've seen people who have suffered strokes sent home from the emergency room without treatment. Yeah. We've seen people with wait times in days waiting to get into the emergency room. It's inconceivable. And it really goes to the heart of what people rely on or lean on in those misconceptions about how deeply a disease like COVID can affect their lives. They have no idea, right? And and people are shocked when they hear these things, but they're all just like you guys have been saying, these are all things that are foreseeable. And it really speaks to this mindset that is promoted by the public health response in the extreme push for individualization, right? We've talked about this before too, like this huge forcing people into this framework of individualized responsibility, because basically it's a framework that the government has always had, which is it's always somebody else's problem. I really want to say that if you know somebody with long COVID that trusts you to tell you that they have long COVID and that understands that they have long COVID, because I know there's lots of people out there that don't even realize because they haven't been told um, by the government at all that these strange things that they're experiencing and that aren't resolving and that maybe come and go, it's long COVID. Anyway, when you know somebody who is open about the fact that they have long COVID, those people work incredibly hard to try to warn the people they care about. And that's not fair that that burden of trying to keep us from jumping off this cliff is placed on the patients. Who is advocating for people with long COVID? That work is like left to the very victims of long COVID. Yeah. They're sick and nobody is helping them. We do not have a long COVID clinic in New Brunswick. And they're trying really hard. The people that I know with long COVID, they care so much because they've experienced the harms of it. They're like, no, you don't want this. Please think twice before you go ahead and do that risky activity that I know you're thinking about and and that you're talking about doing and that you're posting on Facebook and social media. Like it's uh, so they're doing so much for all of us and they're the ones that have been impacted. And I just want to recognize the contributions that the patients are continuing to make and, and have made throughout all this. And just on the financial note, just teleporting us back briefly to March, April, that's the end of the fiscal year. And I would be very interested to know what impacts the fiscal year had on our COVID response. One that comes to mind is that New Brunswick, to get vaccinated for COVID, there were a couple of parallel streams at the beginning of of 2022. You could get vaccinated at a pharmacy, and that was kind of arranged in a variety of ways. Some pharmacies had walk-in dates that they advertised, and you just walked in and got your vaccine. Some pharmacies had their own booking system, whether that was a piece of paper, a binder, and you called and you got your name on a list. And then some pharmacies also were using the government of New Brunswick's booking site for pharmacies. Alternatively, 
in the beginning of 2022, there were the mass vaccination clinics that were the very same as, as when the public first started being invited to get vaccinated. So these were run by the regional health authorities. They were staffed by people who were seconded to the vaccination clinics from their regular positions, whether that was within public health, nursing, whatever, retired physicians and other people who were trained injectors like uh, they solicited for veterinarians and dentists and other health professionals to come and be uh, vaccinators. So the mass vaccination clinics were pretty predictable. You registered for them online. They typically were run the same days, the same times of the week in different communities. And so even after they stopped having them like five or six days a week or even seven days a week, they at least still had them fairly consistently. Anyway, April 1st, 2022, the mass vaccination clinics run by the regional health authorities were like abruptly ended. Like abruptly. Pretty sure it was like March 30th. And they were like, by the way, the last day for the mass vaccination clinics is April 1st. <laughs> like that's how quick it was. And since then it became a lot harder to book a vaccine. And I think it became harder for seniors, people with different mobility challenges, people with different access to vehicles. It really got harder to book a vaccine. Pharmacies were doing vaccination. After the mass vaccination clinics, more pharmacies started offering vaccination, but it was really hard because pharmacies just kept getting asked to do more and more and more during the pandemic and in general. So the uptake of vaccines lessened, especially once our briefings ended, because clearly we're not in an emergency anymore if the government's not talking about it anymore, right? So vaccination really slowed down. And that was this negative feedback cycle. As people stopped coming for vaccination, pharmacies started wasting more doses. And so they started making fewer days available to do the vaccinations. So it's just, I'd be really interested to know what about the fiscal uh, year, the fiscal calendar, what impacts did that have? I also feel like our departments of tourism and recreation and uh, similar things that result that need uh, large events. I know from our right to information request that there was some pressure from those departments on public health, on the Department of Health to I don't want to say that there was pressure to like end public health measures. Certainly, I think it's fair to say that there was pressure to have some stability and some predictability on what kinds of things might be allowed, right? And I wonder if that had to do with the timing of ending the protections in New Brunswick mid-March. Did that allow some of the governmental departments that focus on tourism and other things like events to make their plans for spring and summer? and fall 2022 and, you know, use that that full fiscal year to do the things, you know, to meet their goals and their aims that, you know, end up being kind of counter to public health because some of those events and activities ended up with promotion of disease in addition to promotion of New Brunswick. Well, Chris, would you like to lead us to December of 2022? So for us in particular, data really falls apart uh, for the rest of the year. Instead of going through each month, I think what's best would be to just say where we ended up. With a couple notes in October and then again in December, 
the government released a revision to death counts. That was an attempt for them to go back, look more closely at the death certificates and uh, figure out how many actual COVID deaths we experienced. Both times, those numbers went up significantly. In addition to just adding to the toll that COVID has wrought on New Brunswick, the information that we gleaned from the way that these two revisions were done sort of brought two things to light. The first was that the death numbers that public health used when they decided to lift the mandates were a dramatic undercount. This was not really known until October. Too late to do anything about it, obviously. And like so many of the other transgressions, once they've come to light, they seem to not land anywhere where someone is responsible for that or where there are any consequences for those transgressions. The other thing that we saw was with the data that's coming out each week in our reports, as of the last death revision report, we came to understand that the death metric, which for a long time been one that has been most depended on by people who are trying to gauge the relative risk in their community, is actually not reporting the number of deaths that occurred in the reporting period. So, for example, we have a COVID report for uh, January 1st to January 7th. They say 10 people died of COVID. Those 10 people didn't die of COVID between January 1st and January 7th. They died at some point in the last four to six months. And what we've come to realize is that starting in September, we actually didn't have any death numbers until October. And then from that point on, we haven't had any death numbers really of any substance yet. Uh, Just to use an example, over the past four weeks in January, the last four reports that we've received, they've added 41 deaths to the total. Of those 41 deaths, only two actually occurred in the four-week period covered by those four reports. All this to say that the COVID data that's being reported, that public health and the Minister of Health continue to (laughs) talk about with glowing language is practically meaningless. Deaths are not from the reporting period. Case numbers are dramatically underreported. Public health admits this themselves. Hospitalizations have been redefined. Recently, there was a memo sent to Horizon Health Network, and we can assume Vitalite is the same, where they've told people to stop testing patients for COVID. So the, the numbers that we have mean nothing. But let's look at where we sat at the end of 2022. As of today, the total COVID death count as of December 31st was 771. That is 619 just in the year 2022. To put that into some perspective, that is four times, a little bit over four times more COVID deaths in 2022 than in 2020 and 2021 combined. That's that's sort of a dissonant concept to absorb that the deadliest year of the pandemic is also the year that most people decided the pandemic was over. If we look at, at Canada, uh, we end the year at 49,600, also the deadliest year of the pandemic. In the first two weeks of January has crossed a pretty grim milestone of 50,000 people died in Canada from COVID-19. Some other numbers that we can take away from these, 
Over the course of the pandemic, we've heard many times, and we've talked about kids a lot in this episode, we've heard the rhetoric of COVID is mild in kids and kids don't get COVID or don't spread COVID. One of the things that I came across, one of the metrics, which was very difficult to absorb, we are fortunate in Canada that our juvenile mortality from COVID has been fairly low. That said, there's really no morally acceptable number of children dying from a preventable disease. Over the course of the pandemic, Canada has reported a total of 70 juvenile COVID-19 deaths in people under 19. 50 of those occurred in 2022. Oh, my God. And those are just the ones we know about. Yes. And that's to say nothing of the impacts to children from orphanhood. In Canada in 2022, it's estimated that about a little under 3,000 children lost a primary or secondary caregiver to COVID. Just in New Brunswick, the estimation is 93 kids lost a primary or secondary caregiver. 67 of those, so that's like 72% of those, three quarters of those have occurred since the mandates were lifted. So it's frustrating. Those are difficult numbers to absorb. I don't want to brush past those, but suffice it to say that the pandemic that the majority of the public has been taught to ignore is not ignorable. It continues to tear people, friends, family, children away from us. And the responsibility for the inaction lies at the feet of those officials. And personally, I don't think we should ever forgive this. And I don't think we should shut up about it. I think it needs to be brought to light, continue to be discussed. And uh, I hope dearly that at some point people will be held responsible for the outcomes of their inaction. And their action, because I think that when you reflect back on particularly the documents that we've talked about this week, last week, and and, and in some episodes where we talked about the right to information request, you have people who have actively committed words to paper that are so dangerously, fatally wrong and misleading and manipulative that have led entire communities to engage in behaviors that are against their own best interest. It's not just what the government has failed to do, but it's what they said to us in their trusted and official capacities as premier, as as minister of health, as minister of education, as superintendent, as all of these roles where they have legal duties to act in our best interests or legal duties of care. And they said things to us that led us and our peers and our loved ones and our friends and our families into states of mind and beliefs and behaviors that are harmful. This is where I think an excellent time in closing. We now see these foundations and each one of us every day has the autonomy of choice. What do we do with this information? How do we conduct ourselves now knowing what we know? Do we choose to ignore what we've learned and pretend that things are back to normal when they're not? Or can we choose to protect ourselves and protect people who need protecting? Can we choose to take small actions 
to protect people and literally save lives. We all have the power right now to save people's lives. And we know exactly what to do. Wearing a good quality mask, having good ventilation, having clean air, not gathering with lots of people, staying home when sick. All of this information is information that the Public Health Agency of Canada has repeated over and over again throughout the past three years. We all have the power of choice. And right now, it's a pretty messed up time. But it's also a time when we all get to decide who we are in this story. Are we people who are helping or are we people that are hurting? And right now, people that are hurting are people that are willfully spreading disease, willfully spreading disease and not taking any measures to protect people is hurting people. I don't want to hurt people. And I make the decision to not hurt people and everybody else. You can make that decision in your life too. We all have choice and we all have the excuse to fall back on that I was just following orders. I'm following all of the recommendations of public health. Do we want to be that person or do we want to stand up and protect the people that we love and care about? I know that when I go to bed at night, I feel good about the choices that I made in protecting my children and their long-term health. And I know so many people who can make those choices too. And we all know what we can do to do that. And I think that's, that's something we can do. We are not powerless. Cheryl, you're so consistent. And I, I really, really do appreciate your reminders you are so consistent in reminding people very kindly that we are not powerless you can just do it you can be the mask person yeah it's a great choice it breaks chains of transmission that's really important it's a very good deed the evidence supports it the science supports it public health agency of canada supports it and we support you lots of people out there support you um you're lucky that you're listening to this podcast And you can share this podcast with your friends and family. And you know what's even a nice thing too? You can provide feedback as well if you've enjoyed what you're listening to because providing a review can help bring more eyeballs or ears to this podcast and it can help draw more attention to have listeners realize that we're going to keep talking about this. We see that a pandemic is happening and we are going to keep talking about it. And I can provide some feedback that someone has left. Their feedback title is incredible. Thanks. And they write, this is an easy listen to podcast with incredibly well-informed hosts. Aw. Having everyday people, isn't that nice? Having everyday people break down the intricacies of pandemic management or the lack of it 
has been so helpful for seeing the bigger picture and how all of these things connect to the state of the world in general. I look forward to new episodes. That is very, very kind. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your feedback with us. And thank you listeners for taking the time to share your time with us. We all really hope that this information that you've learned has been valuable to you and to know that you're not alone in this. And there's lots of things that you can do too to stay healthy and to stay safe, as safe and healthy as we can be. So thank you, thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to chatting again next time.